The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Tuesday, January 30th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So this means we are but hours before the moment when our president, elected president, November 8th, 2016, voted on by the Electoral College, December 19th, 2016, sworn in January 20th, 2017, and in mere hours, January 30th, 2018, that will be the moment when he will have become president for the second time. Also, Time Magazine Man of the Year for the second time, according to Wall Hangings in his golf club. The State of the Union. Oh, the pomposity. Oh, the circumstantial evidence. The State of the Union is such a glorious event in this, our museum of democracy, as we inch towards that. People from the crowd will be gestured at. Some will be asked to stand. Members of the crowd will give standing ovations with all the sincerity of a hostage video. It will be fulsome and then some. And then we will see Melania Trump, poised, luminous, stoic, cat-like eyes, sphinx-like mien. This, this cipher will be deciphered by the critics. And it's already happening. Last week, Times columnist Maureen Dowd wrote of, quote, Melania's rebellious vanishing act. Ho ho. Last week, the New York Times commissioned an op-ed, the headline of which was The Quiet Radicalism of Melania Trump. Melania has apparently passed the test, the test being Rorschach. And Donald Trump has cleared the bar, the bar being subterranean. And the news media has passed with flying colors, the colors being purple the prose, and yellow, the journalism in general, and the passing grade, pass-fail. Tonight, there will be no claims of carnage or radical rewriting of weather patterns. This speech is indoors after all. But still, let's not lose our capacity to be shocked. This is still Donald Trump. And yes, he can read words off a teleprompter, but those words will likely lack accuracy and almost certainly lack the proper direction for this country. And unlike the inaugural... The first state of the union will not offer a Dionysus-type figure to render judgment. The unlikely inhabitant of that role, the holder of that lantern at the inaugural was George W. Bush. Remember what he said of that speech? Quote, that was some weird shit. I'm thinking it is safe to pre-file those words as a review of tonight's performance, too. On the show today, I spiel about the right things to say when you're being nuked, and just as importantly, the right way to say it. But first, they closed down the GM plant in Janesville, Wisconsin, about a decade ago. And in its place, well, nothing, no hard industry, certainly some political opportunity. A reporter from the Washington Post went up to Janesville years ago and wrote as full a document and account of a town as you could write. That author, Amy Goldstein, joins us next.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When the GM assembly plant in Janesville, Wisconsin shut down, the town shut down with it. Not literally, it was still there, but as something of a husk. It changed and not for the better. Kids in school relied on charity for warm coats. Former workers became prison guards or retail clerks or commuted to other GM plants 270 miles away every week to keep those $28 an hour jobs. Janesville is like a lot of places in the U.S., except for three things. One, Paul Ryan represents Janesville. He's from there. He's one of the most powerful men in America, of course, unable to stop the tide of history. Two, Barack Obama, at the time the most powerful man in America, used Janesville as an example. He, too, was unable to change things. And the third reason, you thought maybe I would say Donald Trump, because he has brought up Janesville in a speech, but he often glances at things and gives them lip service without being important to their story. I think the third most important thing might be Amy Goldstein, who wrote the book about Janesville, which, if you read it, becomes an ethnography of sorts about a town, about policy, about a certain type of people, maybe about a way of life that's disappearing. Janesville, an American story, is the book. Amy Goldstein joins me. Hello, Amy. Thanks for coming in. Great to be with you. So, Amy, you got interested in Janesville uh, as a story, I guess, as an economic story, and you followed families, three families. So if you could tell me about, you know, how you first heard and why you went there, and then we can start talking about some of the people involved. Well, I was really interested in finding a way to tell a close-up story of what happens when good jobs go away in this country. During the Great Recession and afterwards, there was a lot of writing being done about the politics of economic policies. But I didn't see a lot of writing about what really happens to people and to the texture of a proud community when its best working class jobs go away. And that was a story that I wanted to find a place that would let me tell. And Janesville's uh, assembly plant, General Motors plant, as you say, was the oldest operating auto plant in the country. It had started making tractors in 1919, just after World War I, and it began turning out Chevrolets just a couple years after that. So for generations of people in this small city in southeastern Wisconsin, 
these were the best working class jobs, and they spawned all kinds of supplier companies that created jobs and small businesses that thrived over the decades because this good auto work was there. So I follow a number of people in town, but the three main families were all auto workers. Two of them were GMers going back a few generations, and one was a family in which the、uh, husband and wife had worked at the biggest supplier called Lear Seating, which had about 800 workers that were making seats in just-in-time production. Yeah, just-in-time production. The General Motors plant. Just-in-time production, which means they make the seat and three hours later it's put in the car. Exactly. So you can imagine what happened to all the workers at Lear Seating the day that General Motors closed down. They all lost their jobs too. So I wanted to try to get a sense of, as I came to think of it, what were different choices that people made when there were no good choices left. So you come to town,、uh, what three years after the plant actually closes? That's right. The plant closed、uh, for the most part two days before Christmas of two thousand eight, and I began visiting Janesville the summer of two thousand eleven. So you wanted your families, you know, when you cast the book, you wanted them to represent. There, there were a few ways to go. I'm sure you wanted people who wanted to work with you and people whose、uh, company you didn't mind being around. But did you want to find typical? I don't know if we did a pie chart of what happened to the former workers. Did you want to find families that pretty much represented different large slices of that pie? Absolutely. So one of the families, their last name is Whitaker. And Jared Whitaker had been in his late thirties when these jobs went away. Had worked at General Motors for thirteen years. Had a wife who was working part time, Tammy Whitaker, and raising their three kids. The daughters, when I got to know them, were in high school, twin girls, AP college bound kids,、um, really good kids. And at the beginning, Jared actually thought it was a good thing that the plant had closed because. His father, his father-in-law, other relatives had worked for General Motors, and he had done it too because it was the best wages in town that you could get if you had working-class、uh, kind of a job. As you said, twenty-eight dollars an hour at the end—pretty good work. But he had never liked this work,、um, so he had thought, well, for a year or two, he could kind of coast on very good union benefits that the GMers themselves got. And over that time, he'd figured out something else to do that he liked more. And only over a period of time, for Jared, as for many people in town, it became clear that finding equivalent work was just really hard to do. He went back to school briefly, as a lot of people did, but he didn't stay in the training program. It just didn't make sense to him. He briefly, you know, tried out studying to become a utility worker and realized that he didn't like climbing up poles,、yeah. and、uh, left school. <laughs> And he began bouncing in and out of just bad-paid jobs that were making、uh, him twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars an hour, often without health insurance. So back to his twin daughters,、uh, getting along in high school. As soon as they could, they began working part time. By their senior year, they were working five part time jobs between the two of them, and every now and then slipping their parents a little bit of money from their own checking accounts to help pay the bills. Yeah, and and in doing so,、uh, putting their eligibility for financial aid possibly in jeopardy. That's right. When they went to apply for college loans and scholarships, because they were making so much money, and not that they had good incomes, I mean they were doing the kinds of jobs that teenagers can find in a town with a bad economy. But they had enough money that it made it hard for them to qualify for financial aid.、Right. So they ended up when they went off to college, taking out loans at very high interest rates. 
Yeah, how's that for an incentive? And that's maybe, that hints at some of the ways that government policy or the policies of institutions have failed some of these people. So in the daughters, it seems to me that this is what one generation wants for the next. They want the next generation to have more opportunities. And the daughters do have opportunities. But I think importantly, they don't define their horizons as being defined by the GM plant. And also, they are more flexible workers than the previous generation was. And, you know, you talk about Jared, who was 38 when you met him. Was he one of those? Because a bunch of these workers couldn't even turn on a computer. So that makes, you know, training for the jobs of the 21st century pretty hard. Was he one of them? So one of many reasons why I chose Janesville as a community to write about is because it has a small technical college doing exactly the kind of vocational training that we as a country and as a government, the Department of Labor, puts a lot of money into to help people find new paths back into work. And what I learned getting to know people at the college, as well as some of these former factory workers who are trying to become students, is that it's really hard to do. As you mentioned, the instructors quickly discovered, to their surprise, that some of these people who had been very competent factory workers hadn't had reason to develop very good computer skills. The instructors asked people to write papers. I mean, they didn't know how to use Word to type papers. They were used to writing longhand. But beyond these specific skills that people need in order to be a student in this day and age, there were really tough emotional things going on. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these GM workers and workers at the suppliers were in their 30s or 40s. They hadn't been students for half a lifetime. And perhaps they had gone into this good available local factory work because they weren't crazy about being in school, so they didn't want to go on to college. And suddenly they had to become students just at the point that their identity and their incomes have gone away. They're worrying about how they're going to put food on the table. And they have to learn to study. That's a pretty tough road. So you paint a picture of Paul Ryan as a guy who is fighting and sticking up for his constituents. That's true. He did not let them down. He screamed at the president of GM the moment he was told the plant would be closing. But what about policies that he either um, favored or disfavored that would have helped or hurt the people of Janesville? I guess, what is your assessment of those policies and how the people think of their congressman? There was a big effort uh, that he was part of a big economic incentive package that they thought was large enough that it was going to succeed in uh, getting this plant open, to stay open. And it failed. This effort to reopen the plant was different than Paul Ryan's kind of native conservatism. He um, has long been for um, so-called entitlement form, uh, not a big fan of expanding social safety net programs as they've existed. And, you know, To my take, as somebody who is coming into this community from the outside, these views that Paul Ryan held, while certainly, you know, within the spectrum of ideas across the political firmament in this country, weren't really in sync with what many people in town felt that the community needed. Janesville, which has this long union tradition, is predominantly a democratic-leaning place. Mm -hmm. So there are many people in town who respect Ryan and disagree with his politics. Yeah, and he wins uh, re-election pretty handily. And we should also note that the county, Rock County, where Janesville is, did vote for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, 52% to 42% about. How do they, how did this all affect their politics? 
Well, as you say, in the last presidential election, Rock County in Janesville, which is the county seat of Rock County, stayed barely Democratic. There are still people, particularly middle-aged and older people, who cling to that. Um, I think that union identity has endured in town longer than these union jobs. I think what's going to be interesting is what happens over a generation as these become memories and not people's recent work lives. Did Obamacare help the people of Janesville, and what did they think of it? I know that there was a huge need for health care and affordable health care in the community that had never existed when all these auto jobs were were around for uh, for generations. Wisconsin has not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So the number of people who got coverage through Medicaid expansion in other states has not been the same in Wisconsin. So it's kind of a mixed picture. But so often in your book, the decisions are made because of or largely informed by having health care, not having health care, take a job you have, I can afford to do it because I get health care from this source, or I have to take this job I don't want, but it provides health care. Health care is a huge driver of so many of the economic decisions in your book. Absolutely. And I think that's true in the country. Um, going back to the Whitaker family we were talking about a few minutes ago, Jared Winokur was working these bad-paid jobs. These GM workers, I should say, remained GM workers even though they were unemployed. Some of them could retire and get retirement benefits if they had worked for 30 years at the plant or or General Motors generally. Uh, But not everybody had worked that long. And uh, Jared at one point decided that he was going to take a buyout from General Motors, which meant that he could never go back to work at any General Motors uh, factory around the country, which other people in Janesville, as you mentioned, were doing, unless the Janesville plant itself reopened, which wasn't looking very likely at that time. So it was a big sacrifice, and he did it at a time when the buyout offers were not large. It was a couple thousand dollars, but the thing that was so attractive to him and his wife, Tammy, was that it came with six extra months of health insurance. And that was enough for them at that point uh, when neither one was making much money at all yeah. uh, to sever the ties with General Motors. Yeah. So your your book's about a town. So it was about the people in that town. You followed the GM gypsies, the people who left the town but would come back. But it's necessarily about a town. Tyler Cowen wrote a book called The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. His major thesis was for years, Americans would move to where the jobs were. And we're doing that much, much less of the time. There are a lot of reasons for that. But that has always been a part of the American dynamic, and it's less so now. How does that apply to Janesville? It applies very much to Janesville. You know, as you mentioned, I think that there is a common wisdom that when jobs go away, people should simply look for where jobs still exist and uproot themselves. And what I found is that people, it's not that nobody has left Janesville. I mean, I know people who have moved to General Motors jobs in other communities or other kinds of work in other communities. But that has been far from the dominant thing that people have wanted to do. Um, If you think about a factory that was kind of the economic organizing principle of a community, uh, since just after World War I, generations of family members worked at that plant. And I found that, for the most part, people were really loath to leave Janesville. And I think that the kinds of choices that people have made on Janesville, predominantly not to leave, 
really should give us pause in thinking about, well, if job leaves somewhere, just go somewhere else. Janesville, An American Story by Amy Goldstein. Thank you for joining me, Amy. Thank you. And now the spiel. The FCC has investigated the Hawaiian missile report that freaked out that state. And what they uncovered was that the official explanation was bogus. Now, if you remember at the time, the word was an employee pressed the wrong button and then agreed with a pop-up saying, you sure about that? And he said, yeah, because no one has ever been presented with a pop-up asking, you sure about that? And said anything but, yeah. All right, going on a tangent here. Have you ever gotten this specific pop-up? It's when you're trying to cancel some service, right? And then a pop-up will come on and say, are you sure you want to cancel? And then the choices will be cancel or continue. I never know what they mean by that. Am I hitting cancel like the meta cancel or I'm hitting cancel on being sure about wanting to cancel? If I hit continue, am I continuing with being on your horrible list or subscribing to your service I no longer need? Or am I just continuing with canceling? You just have to get it right. And even if you do continue with canceling, I think they read into it and say, here's an ambivalent guy. We could hook him in the future. And then you get the drop-down choices. Okay, the tangent's expanding. You get your drop-down choices. Why are you unsubscribing, they ask. They always put up there, I never signed up in the first place. Or it's no longer useful to me. I, I, ne- I just want the choice that I never see. Cut of your jib. Just don't like the cut of your jib. You got a dishonest face. That's what I want up there. All right. This tangent's now a full subplot as I muse that I think I'm going to put a pretty high figure on it. I think a significant portion of the American economy is just people forgetting to cancel. I'd say about a twelfth of the economy, my personal spending, is just things I should have canceled on and wanted to, but it didn't go through, or I was canceling, but then I lost Wi-Fi connection. Maybe you non-New Yorkers don't experience it that much. I do a lot of uh, lot of lot of interacting online on the subway, and depending where I am between stations, it either goes through or it doesn't. I definitely have kept my subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club based on being between the Hoyt and Nevins station. So yeah, I would say, I don't know, a twelfth of U.S. economy is just people being on the automatic renewal plan and not getting that cancellation through or hitting cancel when they say, are you sure you want to cancel? Anyway, back to Step back up, step back up. Here we are, back in Hawaii. And remember that incoming missile story? So the whole idea was, oh, it was this one guy who made a mistake. But what really happened was that there was a drill and they were announcing a missile's going to hit. And this guy, or girl, wasn't sufficiently read in on the fact that there's going to be a drill. I think you got to tell your people that there's going to be a drill. I mean, in my office... And our big job is podcasting and occasionally, you know, like retweeting a Jimmy Kimmel monologue. That's what they do in my office. We do other things too. But that, that's some of what goes on. We have, I don't know, 40 or 50 notices that the fire alarm is just a drill. But in the office of the guy who's in charge of telling the entire state of Hawaii they're under attack, no, no pre-notice was given that the thing is just a drill. Now, maybe it's the guy's fault because I'm going to read this from Vox. At a press conference later in the day on Tuesday, Hawaiian officials released a separate report on the incident, confirmed that the employee had been terminated. The report said the worker who pushed the button, referred to as employee one, 
should be employee zero, had been a, quote, source of concern at the Hawaiian Emergency Management Agency's state warning point for more than a decade. You know what? We got a fumble fist who keeps getting terrible performance reviews. Where do we hide this guy in this vast government bureaucracy? I know. Let's have him be the person who tells all of us that we're being attacked by a missile. It worked out on the Titanic. You, you, drunk steward. All right. Next time we get to port, you're off. But until then, you're on iceberg duty. The governor of Hawaii spent 38 minutes unable to tell his constituents the truth, no missile, because he didn't know his Twitter password. The Russian bots would have known. Why didn't you ask them? But that's not even my main concern with the system. My main concern is if the Hawaiians were watching TV at the time that the warnings came out. And there was a college basketball game on, and there was a red banner scrolling across the screen, and this is what they heard. It's actual tape from a non-actual missile. The U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. If you are indoors, stay indoors. If you are outdoors, seek immediate shelter in a building. Remain indoors well away from windows. If you are driving, pull what kind of urgency of is that? I'm not saying go full freakout mode. Get out of the island. No, you don't want that. But why don't you hire an actual human to pre-record that announcement? I, 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 I could suggest the human. You don't even have to go to the contiguous 48. This was put out by Alaskan authorities during their tsunami warning. Hello, Kodiak. Uh, Sergeant Beaver here. Just want to again remind everybody, this is not a drill. This is an actual tsunami warning. Uh, everybody get at least 100 feet above sea level. Nice, Beaver. Maybe a little cash, but human, unlike the robot voice. And it's quite infuriatingly the robot voice that wants to trick you into it not seeming like a robot voice, but it's clearly a robot voice. That's my least favorite robot voice. I say you either go actual human or full-on robot. None of this, there is a missile warning for Hawaii. Like, just the wrong emphasis, but the kind of right intonation. But the oddest thing about this wasn't even the sound. It was the visual. It was the ongoing college basketball game while a missile was supposedly taking out one of our states. Let me describe the action on the screen. Big red banner, you're about to get nuked. Takes up about a tenth of the screen. The other 90% is uh, Jalen Hudson jacks up a three, offensive rebound, kicks it out to Kevon Allen. He jacks up a three. An incoming missile is about to vaporize you. Mississippi brings it down the other end. They miss a three. Looks like the bombs weren't falling in Hawaii or the pavilion at Ole Miss. So I guess the Hawaiians, I mean, it's hard to fault them for not unpacking this, but the Hawaiians who watched that and freaked out had to think, okay, there's a missile in the air. It's about to hit Hawaii, but they're still playing this college basketball game. I know it's not in Hawaii, but, you know, maybe they'd stop and watch, or even if they, the players kept playing the game, maybe the broadcasters, CBS, would pull out of the game to tell us something about this missile that was supposed to hit Hawaii. I understand. It's an SEC conference game. The stakes are high. But maybe, I don't know, at the very least, I would hope that at least the broadcasters would be slipped a note and they could incorporate it into the play-by-play. You know, the Ole Miss Rebels having a hard time defending Florida's inbounds play. You know who else is going to have a tough time with the inbound? It's Hawaii, as an ICBM is inbound, stateside. Oh, cross-court pass, picked off by Hudson. 
but it doesn't look like any anti-missile defenses have picked off what could be a Hwasung 15, maybe a Hwasung 14, like Gators point guard Chris Chioza that Kim Jong-un has a lot in his arsenal. And oh, Bruce Stevens goes diving for the ball, another steal. Stevens is playing like there's no tomorrow, which for the residents of the 50th state there might not be. Back now to JB in the studio is updates on Oklahoma sensational freshman Trey Young and a report that China has invaded Japan right after this word from Papa John's. And that's it for today's show. Today is the day that Pierre Bienname will have become producer of The Gist. January 1st was the day Mary Wilson became just senior producer and in doing so, became GIST producer emeritus. Nobody talks about that. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is actually here in the gallery today. That's right. There he is up there. Oh, little wave, looking a bit uncomfortable. Leaning over, whispering to, who's that female senator? Oh, I thought she was voted out of office. Anyway, yeah, yeah. All right, she pretended to laugh. It's almost over. All right, on to infrastructure. The GIST, the state of our union, is fly. Boom, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.